Hello and welcome back to Catching Up on Capitol Hill, a series in which we discuss the latest in tax legislation and a tax policy. I'm your host, John Gimigliano. Well, it was an eventful week on the tax front for sure. President Joe Biden released his long-awaited proposal for infrastructure. The proposal that implicates his campaign tax plan, along with many of the anticipated tax increases for corporations. And not surprisingly, that's what we are going to discuss today. But let me back up just a little bit and paint the bigger picture, because Biden gave us a better understanding of how the many moving pieces of his broader rescue or build back better agenda fit together. First, there are two separate pieces of legislation being contemplated as part of this broader recover effort. What we got this week was just step one. This week's release was more focused on what you should think of as classic infrastructure, you know, roads, bridges, transmission lines, electric generation, and so on. But to be clear, it has more than what you might think of as just infrastructure investment, but really, that's the way I think of this first step. Infrastructure investment in hard assets. But more importantly for our discussion today, this phase is intended to be paid for by tax increases on corporations. The second phase that President Biden said he would release in the near future is more focused on what the administration is calling human infrastructure, and it is anticipated that this second phase will be paid for by raising taxes on higher earning individuals. Okay, so got it. A two-step process, the first being paid for by corporate tax increases, the second paid for by individual increases. Now, back to this first phase that was released this week. The plan was itself split into two separate packages, the spending and targeted tax cuts and incentives estimated to be roughly $2.3 trillion in size, is called the American Jobs Plan. And there is a lot of tax to unpack in there, and we're going to do that, just not today. That's for a future episode. The second part of the plan, called the Made in America Tax Plan, is where the corporate tax increases are, and that is where we're going to spend our time today. Now, quoting from the plan as released by the administration, the Made in America Tax Plan is intended to, quote, Fix the corporate tax code so that it incentivizes job creation and investment here in the United States, stops unfair and wasteful profit shifting to tax havens, and ensures that large corporations are paying their fair share. To help us sort through this set of proposals, we have our friends Jenna Cunha and Tom Stout with us today. So I guess, Tom, I'll just start with you. We got a lot in this package. Was it more or less the Biden tax plan? Is that what we saw? Or did we actually get a few new items? Well, for the most part, it's the Biden tax plan. It's the major elements of the plan are there, the uh, 28% corporate rate, the minimum tax on book income, repealing fossil fuel incentives, doubling the minimum rate on foreign earnings with a country-by-country application and repealing QBI. All those were proposed by the administration during the campaign, and they're all there. That's where most of the revenue is coming from. But there were a, a few new items and a couple of surprises, important new items at that. There appears to be a proposal for a managed and controlled test for corporate residency aimed at discouraging inversions during the campaign the administration, or I should say Biden, you know, did propose anti-inversion measures but didn't specify what they were. The suggestion in the document that the administration distributed yesterday looked like they were headed toward a managed and controlled test. Not clear exactly, but certainly that was the indication. Another change that wasn't proposed during the campaign was repealing the foreign-derived intangible income deduction, the FIDI. About that, the administration said it gave corporations a tax break for shifting assets abroad. That's because of the way it's calculated. 
and that it was ineffective at encouraging corporations to invest in R&D. And so the preference here indicated by the administration was to get rid of FIDI and use the revenue to provide direct subsidies for R&D in the U.S. And then you know, maybe the most important of the new changes that proposed was to replace the, the base erosion and abuse tax, the BEAT, with something new. We don't have the details, of course, but something to disallow deductions for payments made to any country that doesn't meet a, a minimum tax requirement. I'm not sure exactly what that minimum tax requirement is going to be. You know, and this is all aimed at something, you know, the, the new Secretary Yellen has talked about, the race to the bottom and getting at use of tax havens to reduce tax incentives. So, we, you know, we don't have any details for any of this. And, you know, hopefully we'll get some maybe next month when Treasury releases a green book. But those are the significant new changes. And I guess I would also add that, you know, there could be more changes coming as this works through Congress. And we could see more detail, sort of lower profile changes coming out of the administration before all this is done. So there is some significant new stuff here. Look, I agree with you. There are important new items. You know, the beat repeal, of course, is notable. We're going to talk about that. But first, just go back to your initial point, which was the biggest pieces of this were in the Biden plan, right? The corporate rate proposal, the guilty proposal, the book-based minimum tax proposal. Can't tell you how many people called me, and I suspect you as well, Tom, saying they were shocked that this was the proposal. And I find it a little hard to imagine why they're shocked when this is exactly what candidate Biden said that he would do if elected. So should we be surprised that he actually included the rate proposal and the changes on guilty that he actually kind of ran on? Didn't surprise me a bit. I've been telling people this was coming for a while, but there was always talk in Congress about maybe stopping short of a 28% corporate rate. There may be some members that say they would favor a rate lower than 28%, but they're not saying they wouldn't go along with a 28% rate. So really nothing to suggest that the administration wouldn't just follow the campaign proposals, which it has. Well, and we shouldn't lose sight of the big picture here. Look, this is a proposal, arguably an opening bid from the administration which is not permitted to write a single word of legislation. Uh, it can be influential on that legislation, but really can't write any of it. So we should take it for what it is, but we don't think you should be terribly surprised that it looks a lot like what candidate Biden said he would do. All right, Jen, let me bring you in here. So Tom mentioned this, the beat, you know, let's call it the new repeal and replace, right? We're doing this with the beat. That was a surprise. What's your take on that? Look, you were very involved in developing the beat itself. So what do you think they're trying to get at here with this beat repeal and then replace with this other item that Tom mentioned? Yeah, you know, I find it extremely interesting because the description, obviously there isn't a lot of detail, but the description hinges, it connects the application of this payment deduction denial with having a strong minimum tax, to use the fact sheet words. And first of all, we knew that there would be something on inbound, right? Even though it wasn't part of the campaign, I know John, Tom, we have all talked about how there's a lot of heavy focus on the guilty. There has got to be at some point the introduction of an inbound proposal, right? To kind of provide more balance in the plan. And this is it. I mean, what I find curious about it is that it does repeal the beat, but it's unclear when that replacement would kick in, whether or not it is at some point in the future, whether or not it only kicks in once there is an OECD deal, in which case, you know, that could lead to issues with the estimates. If it hinges on kicking in the interest or, you know, deductible payment disallowance, if it hinges on a deal, 
Well, then there's no revenue to be had because the Joint Committee on Taxation cannot incorporate into a revenue estimate potential future events. So that would be kind of off the table. But if it kicks in immediately without there being a deal in existence at the time of enactment, that could really lead to a whole lot of interesting conversations abroad. Yeah, there's no way to really read this without reading it in the context or at least, you know, the, the subtext of what's going on at the OECD, right? There's just no way to do that. And I agree with you. We always thought there had to be something. If we're really going to double guilty, you know, it largely falls upon U.S. multinationals. We always assumed there had to be something for inbounds. We just never knew exactly what it would be. But this is a pretty profound change. You know, we thought they might add something on or modify the beat in some way, but a complete repeal with this replacement, I guess, Jen, do you think in some ways this is perceived to, to be – because the beat does affect, of course, we know this, more than just inbounds. A lot of U.S. multinationals get hit with it too. Do you think this is perceived to be a little bit of relief to U.S. multinationals? Like, you know, look, we know we're doubling the guilty and we're doing all these structural changes, but at least we're going to get rid of the beat for you and replace it with this thing that is more narrowly targeted at inbounds. Do you think that's possible, part of the calculus here? It could certainly be. It's just a matter of whether or not that's a good trade-off. Right, because you do have the potential trade off. But as I said before, we don't know when it kicks in. Right. So it could be that you're exchanging a guilty provision, which would be effective 1 1 2022. Let's just say that that's the effective date in exchange for something that may never kick in. Right. Or relief that may never be delivered. And we don't know politically how this particular provision is going to shake out, whether or not there will be enough political support for it. So that kind of puts it on shaky grounds. All right. So, Tom, let's take up Jen's point because, you know, look, you and I and Jen, the rest of our team, we debated this. We had a long discussion about how would we sequence this thing? OK, so we've got this repeal and replace. Right? We're going to repeal the beat and we're going to replace it with this thing, this alternate version where we're going to deny deductions to companies that aren't from jurisdictions that have a strong minimum tax. How does that work? Do you think it is dependent upon a deal at the OECD or is it totally independent of what happens at the OECD? Well, you know how the U.S. generally views this stuff is we negotiate with the OECD, but at the end of the day, the U.S. usually does what it wants to do and the rest of the world is expected to react to it. So I would expect, you know, obviously there's a question about whether and how long the administration might give OECD to agree to some kind of a plan and actually have the various countries in the OECD implement it. How long they give them to do that, whether they make something like this effective, 1122 or 1123. But it wouldn't be surprising to me to see them put an effective date on this as sort of the gun to the head of the OECD to come up with an arrangement, because that's generally the way the U.S. deals with the rest of the world, for better or worse. I kind of see it proceeding that way uh, without knowing exactly what the date is. It's always something that could be changed. We decide that put a 1122 date on it and the OEC negotiations seem to be going well, but they're not completed or countries don't have time to, to implement whatever the OECD is proposing. We can postpone the date and that's probably something that, you know, would have wide support in Congress. You know, might even get Republican support, which the rest of this probably won't have. If somebody out there is listening, going, well, why don't they just make this contingent upon this, you know, alternate replacement for the beat, contingent upon broad agreement on pillar two? Jen, explain to us why that probably wouldn't work. You couldn't do that. Technically, you can write a piece of legislation that hinges on a future event. I mean, that's something that was explored in 2017 with the TCJA when we're talking about triggers or potential GDP triggers. 
But in this case, it just wouldn't be prudent to do so because this provision is expected to be a revenue raiser. It's supposed to pay for some of the infrastructure bill. And if the provision doesn't kick in, if the tax doesn't kick in until a future global event takes place, the Joint Committee on Taxation will not estimate how much revenue would be had in the case of this hypothetical event taking place. They use current law as their basis. Of course, they do take into account what taxpayers' response could be to current law. They do not include in their revenue estimates potential or hypothetical future global events. So it would be really tough, right? Because you would have a beat repeal, which would cost a significant amount of revenue, and paired with a provision that wouldn't kick in until some unspecified future event that may or may not take place. So that would cost money instead of raising money, which is really the point of this provision. We shouldn't forget, of course, beat repeal itself will cost money. So if you repeal beat, but then had this contingent, you would be net negative. Although the flip side of that, of course, is if you have it, as Tom mentioned, if it just kicks in January 1st on X date and just anticipate that some of it will be diminished by virtue of these future global events, by the same token, the Joint Committee on Taxation will estimate the provision as raising every penny of revenue without regard to whether or not there would be exclusions in the future driven by minimum taxes adopted by foreign countries. So you have both sides of the equation. You could have that home run where you get the full revenue value of the provision without having to experience any of the cutbacks from the exclusion because they're based on future events. And just as a negotiating tactic, if we were to make a contingent on an agreement with the OECD, there would be every incentive for the other countries in the OECD who don't like this to drag their feet, sandbag us for who knows how long before we could implement it. So that would put the gun in their hands rather than in ours. We've always said that Biden's guilty proposal was on a collision course with Pillar 2. This puts us even on a bigger collision course, especially if, Tom, as you say, what we end up doing is having a set date, and this is effective on date X, right? And deal, no deal, doesn't matter. We're going to begin denying these deductions for foreign headquartered companies. That would be, again, it would really change the dynamic at the OECD. Yeah. yeah, and also worth noting is that we don't know the payments that would be subject to the deduction disallowance. Fair point. Right. I mean, and I would expect that there is going to be a lot of negotiation that focuses on that in Congress, notwithstanding the OECD. So I think that's really going to affect the feasibility of this proposal, because the more exceptions you create, the less valuable the provision becomes and the more politically potentially toxic it could become. Jen, just stick with you for a second. I agree with that, by the way. The details are going to be so important in terms of how broad this thing really is. But one of the other things that was a surprise, because it was not in the Biden plan, it was one of those questions we got all the time, is FIDI. Right, how many times did we get the question, well, what's Biden doing with FIDI? And our answer was, well, seemingly nothing, but we're going to have to see how it plays out. So were you surprised to see him propose repeal of FDII in the proposal that came out yesterday? I've got to say that what made it possible, I think that that moment where things changed with respect to FDII was when Sanders released that JCT letter detailing the value of repealing FDII. And it was triple digits. For comparison's sake, when it was passed in 2017, it cost $63 billion, double digits. 
right? Significant amount of revenue, but you know, passable. To repeal it now, $224 billion. That's a lot of money. The guilty, just by point of reference, raised in 2017, the JCT estimate, it was under $150 billion. This gives you a lot of money to repeal this one provision. I think it just turned it into a very attractive target, right? A simple repeal. It's repealing part of the TCJ tax cuts and hundreds of billions of dollars hard to resist. Well, Tom, as you said, and, and as you pointed out earlier, Jen, it's like two points on the corporate rate. That's a big number. So it is an attractive target. But Tom, as you said earlier, they're targeting more direct spending on investment. So do you think it will be viewed as a reasonable trade-off? Look, we're going to give up FDII, but this package, the broader package that Biden is proposing is going to have a number of very specifically targeted things for R&D and innovation in the U.S. You know, like everything else in politics, the ones that benefit from the direct subsidies will think it's a great deal. And those that are losing the, the FIDI deduction will think it's a bad deal. So where that really works out economically, I couldn't even begin to guess. Who usually lobbies harder? The people who are getting something <laughs> or the people that are about to lose something? Yeah, yeah, it's an easy one, isn't it? Those who are losing it, they're always the noisiest. How much influence they'll have build this magnitude is always the question. In the grand scheme of things, you know, while we in the tax world view this as an important matter, even at the $200 billion level, that's out of a bill that may be approaching $3 trillion. And that's before we add another trillion or two in the next bill. So it uh, makes it a little harder for them. You know, what's interesting about the FITI repeal is that that provision it expands across industries to refill that pot, to backfill, and to make folks that are being denied the provision whole, it's going to cost a lot more money than potentially they're raising by repealing. But that may be a good political trade-off, unclear. Well, and that was sort of the magic of FIDI. Being sold as an anti-base erosion measure always made it seemingly, at least when enacted, incredibly cheap, as you already pointed out, Jen, relative to other things like patent box proposals or IP box proposals we'd seen in the past, which were extremely expensive and didn't seem to be really that effective. So FIDI was always sort of this unique animal. And you're right, it's going to be hard to recreate that dynamic. Tom, just one quick thing. One of the things they say here is that these tax increases we're talking about are going to offset the cost of this bill, but they say over 15 years. We just remind everybody why that's kind of an odd thing to say, at least in our world. Maybe it's not odd in the real world, but in our world, it's a little bit odd. Well, usually Congress works on a 10-year convention for budget purposes. And obviously, the administration wanted to say they were offsetting the cost of this. But with the tax increases they had available, at least as they're estimating them, it was going to take longer than that 10 years to do that. We've got about eight years worth of spending here a lot of which doesn't take place for two or three years on the, you know, on that side. So talking about 15 years is odd, but it does allow the administration to say that they're offsetting the cost of this. I understand it. But the hardest thing for us is that all the revenue estimates we've been dealing with is like, how are we going to get to pay for this are based on that 10-year number, right? So we don't quite know how to translate all these things to 15 years. So if you really believe it's $100 billion per point on the corporate rate, and that's a 10-year number, does that mean it's $150 billion on a 15-year basis? I don't know. But it's an interesting exercise that we're all going to have to try and do some very rough math in terms of how these things add up. We don't exactly know. 
All right, last question. Jen, let me start with you. Do you think anything that we've outlined here, does this change the timing of the process that we've talked about? Like, you know, we've long said that we thought that this would be take all year, infrastructure bill, take a long time to negotiate and draft, et cetera. And we're probably dealing with a Q4 kind of thing. Do we still believe that or is something different now? Even though we have been hearing that the new dates that are being set, that the goal is July 4th, right? That's something that's been swirling out there. These things always take longer than people expect. These are not non-controversial items, right? They may be international tax, but there's going to be a lot of activity on the Hill. There's going to be a lot of back and forth. It's a very large bill. So there's going to be a push to get folks' priorities in there. I don't know. I still think it's going to be pushed into the fall. What do you think, Tom? Because we've got this second bill that I mentioned at the outset, you know, this other package that they're going to have to deal with at some point this year, we think as well. Does that really force them to accelerate this or do you really think it's still Q4? Yeah, I don't know if this changes anything, but, you know, I think the dynamic is still there. And, and John, you mentioned earlier, lobbyists, you know how this game works. When you have legislation that you want to move, you really want to move it as fast as possible to keep the organization of lobbyists from nitpicking the provisions, trying to get more stuff in, taking things out. The faster you can move, the more likely you are to get something done, which is presumably why Speaker Pelosi has talked about having a bill through the House by July 4th, overall with a goal to maybe by the August recess getting this through Congress. Whether they could do it with a bill of this magnitude, we're all kind of shaking our heads, wondering how that's possible, but certainly the political imperative is there. I think I felt all year that Q4, I felt pretty comfortable, pretty safe saying that. I think that still is, for the reasons we've talked about, seemingly the more likely scenario. But I guess there's it, a little bit of doubt creeping into my mind because of the pressure to do this second bill that it theoretically could be sooner. And just one of the other things for us to watch over the coming weeks, months, uh, in terms of how this plays out. I will say that the second bill, because the tax increases are going to very likely be more focused on high net worth individuals, high income earners, that may be a lot easier to negotiate than this bill. Why do you say that, Jen? Just because you think politically easier or technically easier? I think politically easier, right? Because um, here you're really up against U.S.-based multinationals, foreign-based multinationals. You have a lot of stakeholders represented in these provisions that are up for either modification or repeal. When you're talking about individual taxpayers, cap gains, there will be some push, but you just don't see the type of mobilization on the Hill that you would with some of these corporate provisions. So that may just make it a lot simpler. Fair point. Corporations are well-connected in Washington and have been for a long time. Who's out there really working on behalf of individuals? Nobody obvious, so it might turn out just that way. Okay, well, that's all for today. We've gone long already, so I'll keep it short in closing. I'll just note that it's interesting to hear how the Biden team described their tax plan. Let me just go back to that quote that I gave you earlier, that the tax plan is generally proposing to fix the corporate tax code so that it incentivizes job creation and investment here in the United States and stops unfair and wasteful profit shifting to tax havens. I get it. Those are all worthy goals of an effective corporate tax system. But here's the thing. I could pretty much cut and paste that line into one of the GOP-issued press releases describing the development of the TCJA back in 2017. Because encouraging investment in the U.S. and discouraging foreign investment were really the rallying cry back then, too. So maybe this isn't exactly an earth-shattering observation, but the parties largely share the same policy goals for the U.S. tax system, tilt the tax playing field so the capital and investment find its way to here and not elsewhere. The big difference, of course, is how to achieve that. 
Republicans felt that lowering taxes would make the U.S. the jurisdiction of choice, whereas Democrats are saying, hey, we can raise taxes here in the U.S. and still attract investment so long as we proportionally raise taxes outside the U.S. more. These differences of view have existed for a long time, and I wondered if we would ever find out which side, Republicans or Democrats, had the better plan. Well, if the Biden plan or something like it becomes law, its juxtaposition right alongside the Republican TCJA might actually give us the real world experience and the data to do just that. Well, that's all we have time for today. With that, thanks again for tuning in to Catching Up on Capitol Hill. Please don't forget to submit your questions, comments, and suggestions to our inbox. Take care, and I hope to see you soon.